So in uh, my book, The Second Person Standpoint, and in a number of papers since, I've been defending a view about certain moral concepts as essentially second personal, in a sense, that I'll try to make clear. Um, concepts of moral right and wrong uh, and uh, rights, and actually the concept of person in the sense of moral subject. Uh, and what I want to present today is I really sort of gesture to a whole lot of different bits of experimental evidence which I think support the idea that these concepts are ubiquitous in human thought and motivation. Uh, so the, to put it a little bit more precisely, uh, the thought is that moral obligation, the concept, the concept of right, the concept of wrong, that these are second personal accountability entailing concepts in the sense that they presuppose a standing or authority uh, that we all are presupposing when we use these concepts uh, to address claims and demands and to hold people accountable, to hold ourselves accountable, to hold others accountable. Uh, and so the second personal aspect is the idea of address. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean another person. We can address ourselves as I think we do when we feel guilt, for example. Um, and that these concepts implicate react, what Strawson called reactive attitudes, a distinctive kind of human attitude that involves holding someone responsible, holding oneself or holding another person responsible. Um, so first, I want to talk about this, what I'm calling this irreducibly second personal accountability involving character of the concepts of moral obligation, the concept of right and wrong and related concepts. So first, notice the first three propositions. There's good or most moral reason to do A, uh, or two, A is most morally advisable or choiceworthy or perhaps the best thing to do from the moral point of view. And in that sense, one morally ought to do A. Okay. And compare those propositions to propositions four and five. It would be wrong, morally wrong, not to do A. Or five, it's morally obligatory or demanded or required that one do A. And the thought is that four and five don't follow from one, two, and three. And you can see that by noting that you can coherent, someone can, could coherently assert any of one, two, or three, or their conjunction, or whatever, and simply deny four or five. So one way of seeing this is to ask yourself whether you think it's possible to believe that there's such a thing as moral supererogation. That is, an action being most morally recommended by moral reasons, but nonetheless not morally required. Uh, now, I'm not saying whether there is such a thing as moral supererogation. Consequentialists, for example, don't act consequentialists, don't believe there's such a thing as moral supererogation. I'm just asking whether it's coherent to think there could be such a thing. That is, it's consistent with the concepts to think that there is such a thing. Uh, and it seems obvious that it is. So if 
a deontologist who rejects consequentialism on the grounds that consequentialism demands too much, well, that person isn't just being incoherent, uh, isn't manifesting a, a failure to master the moral concepts. There's nothing incoherent in that thought. And I suspect most of us have that thought anyway. I certainly have that thought. And I, I think about myself that there's nothing incoherent in that thought. So if there's nothing incoherent in that thought, then the concept of moral obligation can't just be the same concept as what there is most moral reason to do. Because if it were, then it would be incoherent to suppose that an action is most morally recommended by moral reasons, but nonetheless not morally obligatory. So it just follows that there's a gap between statements like one, two, and three and statements like four and five. There's a conceptual gap. And um, I think that the conceptual gap is that none of propositions one, two, and three entail anything about moral accountability, whereas four and five do entail something about moral, moral accountability. What's wrong What's morally wrong to do is something that we're rightly held accountable for doing or not doing. Uh, rightly there means not morally rightly, it means intelligibly, fittingly. Uh, um, so the idea is that it's just part of the concept of moral obligation and consequently all concepts that are related to it, like the concept of moral wrong. Right? So what's moral wrong? Moral wrong is the violation of a moral obligation. What's a moral obligation? Well, that's something that morality demands of us. Well, all of those concepts entail the concept of accountability and the reactive attitudes, the, the, the justification for the reactive attitudes, like blame, for example, um, that are involved in holding someone, either ourselves or someone else, accountable or responsible in that sense, in the sense of accountability. So I think it's just a conceptual truth that um, if doing A in C is wrong, or equivalently, if it's morally obligatory in C not to do A, then it just follows through the concepts that doing A in C without excuse would be justifiably blamed doing A and C is blameworthy uh, unless the agent has some excuse. So roughly the thought is, if an action is morally obligatory, then uh, not doing that action would be blameworthy unless the agent had an excuse. Uh, if the agent had an excuse, it would still be wrong, but they wouldn't be blameworthy. If the agent had a justification for doing it, and not just an excuse, then it wouldn't be wrong because it wouldn't be, you wouldn't require an excuse to deflect blame. The justification would be sufficient. Okay. So those are the conceptual claims. Um, and I want to say a little bit about reactive attitudes. And here we have this wonderful photograph of the insouciant Piet Strassen uh, from an earlier age, smoking cigarettes. And it's taught, I don't know if you know this, but this photograph, I don't know if you've seen this photograph before. Many people have seen the photograph, but many people who've seen it don't know that it was actually taken by Simon Blackburn. <laughs> um, 
In fact, I didn't know that when I showed this photograph once and Simon was there. I said, I took that photograph. So Strawson wrote this really important paper called Freedom and Resentment. And you know, for 30 years, people who work on freedom of the will and moral responsibility were thinking about it and being influenced about it by it. But it didn't have a whole lot of uh, influence in fundamental moral philosophy. And what I've been trying to do in my work is to show that the implications of that very important paper uh, come into the foundations of moral philosophy. They tell us something about the very nature of moral obligation and what it would take to ground a claim of moral obligation, hence any claim that's analytically related to moral obligation like moral right and wrong and so on. Okay. And Strawson's idea was that what he calls reactive attitudes, what I sometimes like to call holding responsible attitudes or holding accountable attitudes, his idea was that they involve a distinctively, as he put it, interpersonal or participant way of regarding someone as participating, as a potential participant in relationship with one. And that they contrast with other, other kinds of attitudes that he calls objective. And they, these can be as critical as you like, but unlike reactive attitudes, they don't involve uh, this distinctive interpersonal, or as I think of it, second personal way of regarding someone. And the idea is that when you view someone interpersonally, as I put it, second personally, when you relate to them, you're forced by the very nature of your thought to make certain assumptions about their will, about your will, and the capacity of reciprocal interaction between you. And those are the assumptions I've been trying to work out. Strawson thought that reactive attitudes like blame and resentment implicitly make demands of their objects. They hold their objects to an expectation. So when you're disposed to feel reactive attitudes, you have an expectation of someone. If they fail to meet that expectation, then you feel as if you're in a position to hold them to the expectation. Blame or resentment is a holding of someone to an expectation. And in doing that, it's, in effect, making a demand on them and on their will. But it's not a naked demand. I mean, it may be a naked demand, but it doesn't feel, from the perspective of having the attitude, as if it's a negative demand. It feels as if it's a justified demand, a warranted demand. You have no right to treat me that way. That is wrong. Uh, Okay, so they implicitly, therefore, presuppose the authority to make the demand. And they implicitly bid, this again is their distinctively second personal or interpersonal character, they implicitly bid for the other's recognition of the authority to make the demand. So they're always bidding for reciprocal recognition, of what the Germans call uh, anerkennung. Um, as it operates, say, in the thought of Fichte and to the degree Hegel. Uh, so I put it this way. They come with an implicit RSVP. They, they, in effect, they feel as if there's a form of address of the object, uh, and the thought is, just as when you ask someone a question, you're kind of waiting to hear the answer. Well, the answer would, of course, recognize you as a questioner. Uh, 
So this sort of lays it out a little bit more, uh, in a little bit more detail. Let me just add here the last thing, G. This is an important fact, I think, about these kinds of attitudes, that these attitudes bid for, again, reciprocation. And they bid for a reactive attitude in their object that reciprocates the attitude in the addresser. So guilt is the reciprocal attitude towards resentment or blame. What do I mean by that? I mean that if, if, it feel, if you feel guilt, it, you feel as if you violated someone's legitimate demand. And you feel as if you owe something uh, to them, that you're responsible to them in some way. Uh, well, that's a case where you violated, let, let's say, an obligation to them. Suppose you just violate an obligation pure and simple. Well, there it's as if, again, you violated a legitimate demand, not that any particular person is in a position to make as an individual, but that we just make of ourselves as members of the moral community and make of one another as members of the moral community, representative persons. Um, and so guilt reciprocates the blame because it acknowledges the authority of the demand that uh, it implicitly makes of itself. But not just, you know, when I, when I feel guilt, it's as if I'm making a certain demand, I'm pressing a certain claim against myself, but not as if from any other particular person's perspective, as if from a perspective that I can share as a member of the moral community. <coughs> so in this way, blame and resentment and other negative reactive attitudes differ from negative critical attitudes like contempt or disdain that don't have uh, this distinctively second personal or interpersonal character. And one way I like to make this distinction is by talking about the difference between looking daggers attitudes, um, which you're looking daggers, at, you're looking at the person to get the other person to look back at you uh, and to acknowledge in some way, versus rolling eyes attitudes, where rolling eyes uh, are is like contempt or disdain. The whole point about you know when you roll your eyes, you literally roll them out of shape, of position to engage the other, okay? So here we have, uh, in honor of the Olympics, um, two Italian ice dancers in the Winter Olympics, not the most recent one, but the one before. Uh, I talk about this a little bit in my book. Uh, Barbara Fusarpoli and Maurizio Margaglio, um, and they were skating, and they were very close to the end of the routine, and they were on track for a medal of some kind, you know, maybe a gold, up to silver. Uh, but uh, Maurizio dropped uh, Barbara Fusarpoli. They went to the ice. And they got up, and for about uh, 15 seconds or so, Barbara Fusarpoli just looked at Maurizio. Well, didn't, she doesn't, she's not just looking at him. <laughs> you might think she's looking through him. <laughs> 
but she, she's seeking to engage, I mean, as, uh, as one internet edition of a paper put it, Barbara Fusarpoli to Maurizio Margaglio, look me in the eye and tell me how you dropped me. Now, we have to prescind from the fact that, you know, in sports, we think of this as not generally a moral case. Um, we don't think of this under the, as generally as under the rubric of moral obligations. But I'm pretty sure she's thinking <laughs> that what he did was blameworthy. Uh, what was it? Who knows what it was? You know, what is she holding? Did he, did he stay up too late the night before? Did he take his, you know, did he, did he forget to concentrate? Was he negligent in some way? Who knows what she's fashioning in her mind, but she, it looks like she's supposing there's something there, right? She's not expressing disappointment. She's not expressing, nor is she just, like, rolling her eyes at him. She could have done that, right? She could have rolled her eyes and sort of skated off. Uh, that would have not have involved any kind of implicit address to Maurizio, right? It would have involved implicit address to, you know, the, the self-talk would be something like, there he, there he goes again, or can you, did you see what he just did? Right? But who's the you and did you see? Well, you people who are able, like I am, to see what he did. Okay. So disdain and contempt and related critical attitudes don't attempt implicitly or even imaginatively to address their objects. If there's any object of address at all, it's the, what I call the cognoscenti offstage, the ones who are in a position to, to see uh, how low or contemptible or how lacking in estimable qualities the person is or just manifest. That's different from reactive attitudes. Reactive attitudes, um, in fact, it's, here's, if, if you're not yet convinced, uh, ask yourself, what do reactive attitudes have to be to play the role they are supposed to play in Strawson's argument in Freedom and Resentment? The whole point about reactive attitudes is that they involve this distinctive way of regarding someone that involves an implicit attribution to them of freedom, will, and so forth. Um, that's not true with disdain or contempt. So with blame, we're implicitly assuming that the object of our blame is able to know what they did, was able to hold themselves to that standard, was in a position to see with disdain or contempt, no such assumption. Right? I, one example I like to use is Hume's famous phrase of being an egregious blockhead. <laughs> if there was ever a contemptuous <laughs> phrase, that would be it, right? Well, when you think of someone as an egregious blockhead, you don't have to think that they're in a position to see what an egregious blockhead they are. To the contrary, right? I mean, if they're really an egregious blockhead, they won't even have a clue about how egregious a blockhead they are. Now compare blaming someone for acting like an egregious blockhead. Well, if you blame one, someone for acting like an egregious blockhead, then you're implicitly presupposing that they, they <coughs> could have acted differently, they could have seen, they could have, hold, they could have uh, seen what they were doing. Okay. Now, what I want to talk about at this point is a bunch of experimental evidence for the ubiquity of 
you know, on, the, on the assumption now, let's say, that, that the concept of moral obligation is conceptually related to uh, the idea of blameworthiness and justification for reactive attitudes and accountability, which is mediated through these reactive attitudes, holding someone to an expectation and so on. On that assumption, I just want to show you what I, what I regard as a whole lot of experimental evidence that these concepts play a ubiquitous role in human thought and behavior and motivation. So first, let's just start with the Milgram experiments, well-known experiments. Of course, those experiments are just about authority, right? And that's what they're, on their face, that's what they're about. So they're about people taking uh, what, what it's seeming to the subjects in the experiments as authority or justified authority as a reason for acting. They take themselves as accountable for compliance and so forth and so on. What I'm interested in actually, in addition to that sort of superficial frame, is what is it that leads them, the subjects, to violate the, the order from the authoritative uh, experimenter to continue to shock the, sub, the supposedly the other subjects. We know it's the stooge. Uh, what is it that leads them to walk away? Well, it's interesting that before, so initial, in the initial setup, the subjects are in one room and the person they're supposedly administering shocks to is in a separate room. And there is no protest that's heard before a certain point. An interesting, th an interesting thing is that no subject fails to shock or stops shocking before there is a protest, audible protest, from the next room. Once there's audible protest, then um, about one-third of the subjects stop shocking within five rounds or so. And this, you know, this is all still very shocking in another sense. But look on the good side for a moment. I mean, so look, suppose you're a subject in this experiment, right? You're, you're told that you're just, you're, you're told that the person you're administering these shocks to is someone who, like you, has agreed to be in the experiment. Okay? So you both uh, are doing your job, as it were, and you hear no protest from this other person. You believe, let's suppose, that you're administering these shocks, but the other person isn't protesting. Now, if you were to decide unilaterally to stop, you'd be arrogating to yourself the authority to stop, but look, it, maybe the other person doesn't want you to stop. You don't know, right? Of course, once the other person gives you protests, now you know. And sure enough, people start to uh, not shock at that point. Uh, so in another setup, when people, when the subjects who are supposedly being shocked are in the same room, then um, then there's much less shocking that goes on. Um, uh, and when protests are audible earlier, even when they're in the other room, uh, there's less shock. So what I'm trying to bring out here is the way in which the behavior of the subjects is responsive to um, the other person who they're taking to have some authority to uh, make claims and demands of them. And when they do, 
then they, they behave, that affects their behavior. Uh, here, here's a quote from Milgram that makes vivid this idea that the accountability of the subjects to the person to whom they're administering shocks plays a kind of role uh, in, in their behavior. Related experiment, uh, also Milgram, you may know about this, but you may not. Uh, Milgram told his graduate students, go down the subways and uh, just ask people randomly to give them their seat. Right? And after a while, the sub, the, his, notice his graduate students weren't coming back with results. He said, what's wrong with this? I'm get caught. And they said, you think this is so easy? You try it. Okay. And so he tried it, and here we have uh, some words from him that were quoted in a New York Times article uh, uh, about this experiment. The point of the experiment is, the way I read it, we implicitly give one another a kind of authority uh, to make claims and demands on us, and we don't think that we can just go up and, and make a demand of someone unless we're in a position to justify it in some way to them. So we're seeing one another as beings to whom we have to, to whom we owe justifications. We're seeing ourselves as beings to who, who are mutually accountable. Um, you know, may, may know about this experiment. This is from uh, Batson, Nettle, and Roberts, uh, some psychologists in Newcastle. Uh, so there was uh, an arrangement where Bonk, you know, it was supposed to be self-monitoring contributions, paying for coffee, um, and when they put literally this picture of eyes, and this is a photograph of um, the sh what was posted there next to the coffee, uh, having eyes as opposed to some other symbol increased contribution by threefold. Uh, um, so you might say, well, they're trying to avoid the disapproval of others, so forth and so on. Well, the thought here is that there's some sense of accountability uh, to others. And yes, it may be that what's moving us is the desire uh, not to be blamed by others, but then I think there are other arguments to show that what we want to do also is not to be blameworthy, not just not to actually be blamed, but not to act in ways that are blameworthy. Um, okay, there's a whole bunch of experiments uh, in experimental economics about what's sometimes called altruistic punishment. I think that's a misnomer. Uh, costly punishment is fine. Costly just means that people are prepared to hold others responsible, administer sanctions for things they think are manifestly wrong and blameworthy, uh, even at some cost to themselves. Uh, so that's, that's the result in Fair and Gector. You do these various kinds of prisoner's dilemma-like uh, experiments, and uh, when other people are done wrong by, uh, in the experiment, well, then they have some, uh, they are prepared to give up some of what they gain in the experiment to deliver costs to others not as a way of getting the other to cooperate with them in the future because the, the, 
these are they, the experiments are very carefully designed so that uh, there won't be future cooperation with that person. So it's not a tit for tat sort of iterated prisoner's dilemma kind of thing. It's that they really are holding others responsible at some cost to themselves. Surprise, surprise, that increases cooperation. But the interesting thing is that, and this is, I'll go down to four, the Fair and Rokenbach thing there on the bottom. If, if the people who are being uh, punished think that the punishing is strategic, that it's being done in order to get them to act in these ways, and it's not legitimate, that actually decreases cooperation. So it's, it's the, again, the idea of a legitimate sanction, a legitimate blame, rightly being held responsible. Uh, and then it, there's other interesting results. Um, expressing blame, which is quite literally second personal, holding the other responsible in this way, addressing one's reactive attitude to the other, that actually increases cooperation more than having some cost that isn't expressive. And the other thing is that victims actually prefer to express blame than to see the perpetrator rot in hell or something like that, be administered some cost that doesn't involve the expression of blame. Um, Tom Tyler, uh, for many years at NYU in the law school, just moved to the Yale Law School, has done a whole series of experiments on accountability uh, in tort proceedings and actually a whole wide range of judicial proceedings. And here we have some quotes from Tyler uh, that express his thought that what these experiments show is that what victims want most in tort proceedings is to be heard, to be acknowledged, to for the perpetrator to own up to what he or she did, own up to the victim and apologize in some way, take responsibility, make himself or herself accountable uh, to the victim. As he says, where an individual has been negligent negligently injured, compensation is generally a poor substitute for accountability. Uh, and then we know that, in fact, uh, reactive attitudes like blame and resentment uh, will tend to dissipate if the person who has the attitude is told uh, and thereby knows, accepts what he's told, that that blameworthy agent has already been held accountable sufficiently. Um, uh, likewise, if the blameworthy agent apologizes, takes responsibility, that tends to lead to um, a dissipation of the reactive attitude. I mean, that's the function of, I mean, that's in effect what forgiveness is. I mean, <coughs> forgiveness isn't uh, excusing something and not treating it as an action that was wrong. Forgiveness is saying, well, no, actually what you did was wrong and blameworthy, but I accept your apology. Uh, let's move on. 
So in all these ways and more, I think we just have all, just, just lots and lots of evidence that um, the interdependent second personal concepts of moral demand, obligation, wrong, blameworthiness, and accountability are just ubiquitous in human attitudes and motivation. Um, so in the few minutes remaining, uh, maybe I'll just say a little bit about the Nob effect that actually fits a little bit with what Leanne was saying, uh, or the, the example about the, uh, the chief and the doctor and, um, enforcing to kill or not forcing to, sorry, I guess the subject said that uh, the doctor was forced to save, not forced to kill, right? but that the chief didn't force the doctor to save. Right. And he certainly didn't force him to kill. Right? He okay. forced him to kill. Sorry? He forced him to kill. But he wasn't forced to kill. Oh, I see. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I think, right, right. He did force, yeah, and I think I can explain all this by, by using these concepts. Um, so this is what I'll call an accountability-based or second personal analysis of the Nob effect. Um, <clears throat> so you, I'm sure you all mostly know, maybe everyone knows, uh, Josh has set up, uh, first an exec is told, the subjects are told the following things, an executive is told that a policy will maximize profits but harm the environment. He cares only about maximizing profits, he pursues the policy. Second case, an executive is told that a policy will maximize profits and benefit the environment. Um, notice, by the way, we say, just a point of English usage, makes good sense to say but in the first case, but not in the second, okay, and. Um, <clears throat> and benefit the environment. Caring only about maximizing profits, he pursues the policy. Did the executive in one intentionally harm the environment? Most subjects say yes. Did the executive in two intentionally benefit the environment? Most subjects say no. Now, uh, and the note effect is that intuitions about what mental state someone was in, whether he or she acted intentionally or not, are affected by moral judgments. And that's what I think Josh prefers to put the point. I think that's a little misleading way to put it because it's supposing that the very same mental state either is or isn't attributed to the person based on the moral judgment. But what I'm going to try to show you here is that that's, that's just not the case. Uh, why? Um, so let's just assume, I, I, think the sub, I think we can assume that the subjects are assuming that it's wrong to harm the environment. That's wrong. If it's wrong, then by my conceptual thesis, it should follow that it would be something that would be blameworthy were the executive not to have an excuse. And so I think we probably should think that the subjects are thinking that harming the environment, the executive's harming the environment, um, is wrong and is blameworthy. Lacks an excuse. Okay. Well, if so, then I think we can explain the effect as a straightforward ambiguity. Unintentional 
functions as an excuse when we're considering whether the person is to be blamed or not for doing something. So I didn't mean that, or that was accidental, that was unintentional. But it's efficient for it to be intentional in that sense that you know what you're doing, right? So there's no, there's no question about whether the executive knows what he's doing when he goes ahead with pursuing company profits, though it's harming the environment. So we say it's intentional. And by that we just mean it's not unintentional in the sense that it would function as an excuse. But that sense isn't relevant in judging whether the executive's benefiting the environment is intentional. Benefiting the environment is neither wrong nor obligatory. So if your action doesn't, just doesn't affect the environment one way or the other, then it's not wrong. Um, the sense of intentional that's in play here is the one that's relevant to praiseworthiness. But the point is that praise is not actually the contrary of blame. You might have thought that it was, and most people tend to think that it is, but it isn't, and here's why. Blame is a second personal, holding responsible attitude. Praise is something like esteem, right? Esteem is not second personal, it's third personal, it's an observer's response. And, it's, and, the, and the thought is that you don't praise people for their acts independently of their motivation. It's really an esteem of the person and the person's character and the person's motive. But we don't, I mean we sometimes hold people responsible for their motives, but frequently you hold people responsible for their acts independently of their motives. Whereas we don't esteem people for their acts independently of their motives. Okay? So um, the sense of in, that's in, would have to be intentional in the, in the case of did the executive benefit the environment intentionally is did he do it on purpose? That is, did, was he trying to do it? Was that what he, he was trying to achieve? We know it wasn't. He was trying to maximize profits. The fact that the, benef- that the, that the um, environment has benefited is just an, un- you know, it's an expected side effect, but it's, not, it's nothing that he was trying to bring about. So in that case, we say it isn't intentional because what we have in mind is a different question. So it's not as if there's the very same mental state that we, you know, the, this very same question we're trying to ask in both cases and we give the answer yes in one case and answer no in the other. It's a different question that's on the table. Um, okay. So blame concerns an agent's accountability for an action. That's whether we can legitimately demand of someone that they act in that way, that they acknowledge uh, our authority, or the authority of the moral community to demand that, make the demand of themselves, and so forth and so on. Praise is esteem of someone's character and action is reflected the person's character and it's just a different thing. Blame is second personal, praise and esteem are third personal. So I think the Nova effect is yet further evidence 
of the ubiquity of second personal accountability involving concepts in our mental lives. Thank you very much.
the other person owes you. Because the whole point about gratitude is that the person did something for you that you had no uh, claim on. And uh, so you wouldn't have the concept of gratitude unless you had the concept of what people owe to one another. Uh, so when I'm grateful to you, of course I'm not pressing a demand of you. If there's any demand, I might feel it at myself uh, to acknowledge your gratitude uh, and to a get of gratitude that I owe you. But I am seeing you as someone who, uh, like me, has some standing to make claims and demands, and on whom claims and demands can be made. Love is an interesting case. Uh, Swanson does say that love is a reactive attitude. Um, yeah. Uh, I think actually in love, uh, of course, there are different kinds of love. I think what he has in mind is not parental love, but you know, love between two adults, let's say, or almost adults or something like that. Um, so love of that kind is kind of importantly related to jealousy, right? Some notion of some standing in relation to the other, having some place in relation to the other. And jealousy is fear of loss of that place, and you know, love notoriously when spurned, but gives rise to, can give rise to indignation and resentment. I mean, I think, I think love of this kind is only possible between beings who are seeing one another as having some standing to make claims against, against one another. Though obviously when you love someone, you're not seeing them just as an other person. Um, uh, contempt. Well, there's contempt and there's contempt. I mean, there's a, you know, so I can be contemptuous of, I mean, look, let me just grant you that there's, there are forms of contempt that are moral. Okay. Uh, and let me also grant you that um, there's a kind of implicit claim on the person of whom one is in contempt, who's being contemned, uh, that, uh, and as you say, what's so annoying about being the object of contempt is as if the other person sort of is expecting you to agree with their standards, and you know, they're implicitly, uh, they're not just applying the standard to you, but uh, they're thinking that, you know, you should sort of agree with it. Um, so I'll agree with that. Um, but part of it is that there's, even if we have all of that second personal stuff built into contempt, we don't necessarily have built in standards of accountability. Okay? So I can have contempt for people be, because of their being in the religious blockhead. And I don't think, I mean, so the problem is you could, you could intelligibly have contempt for things that you regard, <coughs> you think that people shouldn't feel guilt for not complying with. Guilt wouldn't, contempt doesn't call for reciprocation by guilt in the same way that blame calls for reciprocation by guilt. 
if there's anything that reciprocates guilt, it's as you say, I mean, contempt, it's, it's as you say, shame. But shame, notice how different shame is from guilt. Guilt, the natural expression of guilt is second personal. It's to apologize, to take responsibility, to sort of dedicate yourself to relating well to the other person. The natural expression of shame is to remove the face, to hide. It's to no longer sort of go on presenting yourself in the same old way. Because what you, you know, because if you feel shame, if you feel if you feel rightfully condemned, so not content, not condemned, that's not contempt. Rightly condemned, right? Uh, if you're rightly condemned, then you're rightly blamed. That, that's your back in my territory. But if you're rightly condemned, then uh, it's to you as if um, the self you've been presenting is actually base and ignoble. And you better get that self out of town and get a new self into town. Uh, yeah. Can move on. Second one. That's true. We can come back to you. Yeah. Maureen, Maureen. Yeah. Related to yeah. the sentiment. So I was wondering, uh, is there a reason to play instead of resentment? Perspective or by people on behalf of the victim. 
But he also talks about impersonal reactive attitudes. He says it can be nation, that's fine. I'd say blind also. But it's crucial for his argument, and it's crucial for my argument, that these so-called, what makes them impersonal is they're not felt as if from the victim's perspective. Right? So we use an example I sometimes use. You, know, you read about Mugabe, another outrage from Mugabe uh, against his, uh, the citizens of Zimbabwe. Um, and you can't resent it because you're not a, a citizen of Zimbabwe and you're not personally related to citizens of Zimbabwe, I suppose. Uh, so you can't resent it. But you still feel the nation, you still blame I do. Uh, feel that it's outrageous. You're not feeling that as if from the perspective of the citizens. You're just feeling that as from the perspective of a member of the moral community or representative person. But the crucial point for Strawson is that both what he calls personal and what he calls impersonal reactive attitudes are interpersonal in his sense, or second personal in mind, in that they implicitly make a demand. So indignation and blame makes a demand implicitly, no less than resentment implicitly makes a demand. The interesting thing is that there are two different authorities that get presupposed here. There's what I call the representative authority of the moral community, which is involved with blame or indignation. And there's the individual authority of the resenting victim that gets presupposed in the case of resentment. And you can see this reflected in the difference between the law of torts and criminal law. So in many jurisdictions in the US, uh, I think in Britain, but I specifically prepared otherwise, uh, only the victim can bring a tort action. And the state doesn't bring tort actions on behalf of the victim. And, you know, and that's required because we think it's, it's the discretion of the victim whether or not to forgive, for example. Whether, so the victim has a distinctive standard or authority <coughs> to forgive or not, right? To seek compensation or not. That's up to the victim. But criminal law, criminal cases aren't brought by the victims to say so, they're brought by the people, by the people's representative, the prosecutor. Uh, and blame is to resentment as uh, bringing a criminal case is to bringing a tort action. So, but the crucial point is by second personal, I don't mean another person. Right, so you might say it's only resentment is one person, uh, the victim, feeling that she has a case against that another person's treatment of her. Right. Um, but blame and impersonal activities of indignation and outrage are no less interpersonal in my sense because they implicitly make a demand in a way that other critical attitudes can. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I like the idea that the uh, second person accountability is somehow fundamental to at least a large part of morality yeah. and, and uh, really interesting product to try and kind of find support uh, for within the empirical literature. Right. Um, by the way, one thing that came to mind, uh, um, uh, contempt, expressions of contempt appear to be a, 
a really strong predictor of marital yeah, failure. I have, I have a paper which I thought. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great point. I mean, I eat out on this point. Uh, um, a marriage might have died on this point. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, when somebody's angry at you, fine, just look it out. You know, you, 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 you can talk about it. Yeah. Once, yeah, so John Gottman has this stuff. What, you can just predict from the number of eye rollers in a therapy session uh, what the likelihood is that the people will be together on this. My question is, is, I'm not sure for a lot of these studies how well they discriminate between this as opposed to other moral frameworks. So like in the Milgram experiments, um, you, also, you also find, say, physical contact, like having to physically put your hand on there. Um, it, it may be some empathy response. Um, uh, uh, explain it, or maybe some other kind of, say, Kantian framework. Right. Um, in the case of the eyes, um, maybe that could be explained in terms of some very primitive response that lots of animals are very sensitive to, to eyes. Um, yeah. It makes me think of uh, waking my dog out of the trash, maybe. But, um, but anyway, so it, it, it's uh, like the data looks consistent. It certainly looks consistent with yeah. the view. Yeah. I'm having but it's, it's not as obvious yeah. Yeah, that it yeah. provides positive support. That's right. So um, supposed to take empathy first. Um, so empathy, as in say that Batson's work, can lead to uh, what he calls altruism or uh, prosocial or what I call benevolence or sympathetic concern, like desire of benefit. You know. There's nothing second personal about that. In other words, you're just vividly aware, let's say, of, that someone uh, is being injured or being harmed, and that there's something you can do to change it, and it develops a desire to change it. There's nothing second personal there. Empath empathy, though, can also mediate respect. Um, so it's the difference between how does it do so? Well, um, somebody is, could just make vivid to you how they feel about something. And that can have authority for you independently of your thought about whether that feeling, they're right about that feeling, or it'd be better for them or benefit them. So take paternalism case, right? Uh, Someone wants you to help them do something that you think is effective. But you think they're perfectly within their rights to want to do it and uh, to ask you to help them do it. Um, and so, 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 so empathy. When empathy clues you into the way things are from someone else's perspective, then in effect, what it's cluing you into, or can clue you into, is their will. What, what claims they would make of you, whether they consent or not, uh, whether they are requested or not. 
course, that would be relevant to what would be what would actually benefit them, or uh, the thing that you'd be concerned about if you, from the perspective of benevolence. But it's different. So empathy has a, can have a second personal form, or it can have a third personal form. Uh, uh, so in the case where, yeah, so what, what Dan's reminding us of is in the Gilbert experiments, when people actually had to administer the pain um, physically to the other and could feel the other's resistance. Right? And the two, look, it's, it's probably overturned, right? Part of what's happening is they're making it more vivid that there's, the other person's actually hurting. But it's also making it much more vivid that the other person is resisting being hurt in that way and doesn't want to be hurt in that way. It would have you stop, thank you very much. Right? That's the second person. Because that's them, them implicitly making a claim on you. And you know, consent operates the same way. So consent is what if we think that the things that are subject to people's consent, then we're seeing them as having a certain authority to let us do things or, or not let us do things, to release us from a certain obligation that otherwise have. So, yeah, I don't want to say this is the only kind of motivation. Obviously, obviously there are other kinds of motivations. Um, and, uh, and other kinds of motivations that are at work in some of these very same experiments. But I think what these can show is that this is one important source of motivation among others. And it's, if I'm right, it's the source of motivation that's built into the concept of moral obligation. Yeah, so it's a question about your interpretation of the, the Nova Pack. Yes. Um, so, uh, so, okay, so uh, you you end up, I take it, reading question one, that where the executive told a policy will maximize profits but harm the environment. You just use a policy. Did, did he intentionally harm the environment? You interpret that as a question, is he blameworthy? No. No. Um, is he in a state that would, so, it's, sorry, it's not the very same thing. Right. I maybe I should just say almost yes. Right. In other words, there might be other things that was exculpated. Yeah. Right. But he's not exculpated by any question of the intentionality of his action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm finding that a little hard to follow. Um, but let me continue. Well, put it aside. Did, did he act unintentionally? Okay. Suppose we ask that. Did he unintentionally harm the environment? Okay. okay. I'm saying we're hearing that question um, against the background of the assumption that if he did, then what he did isn't blameworthy. Mm -hmm. But we think what he did is blameworthy. So we don't think that he unintentionally, merely, as we say, unintentionally, we think that he knew exactly what he was doing, he knowingly did so. And that's what, that'll count as intentionally harming the environment, because uh, the question is whether he intentionally did wrong. Right, all right. So a couple of things about your training with this. So, um, so first of all, uh, you had to make an, an assumption about the about harm, harm the environment being invisible, which 
it's doubtful that most folk would share, or you know, it's questionable whether most folk would share that intuition. Yeah. But we could easily tidy it up. We could make questions to not to, uh, uh, the policy of maximize profits and cease harming the environment. And did he cease harming the environment intentionally? Because they, whichever, whatever the folk think, they uh, ought to think that these cases are then uh, symmetrical. Um, but I, I mean, I'd question, I mean, it's testable, of course. I'd question whether that would actually change the result if you just switch the word benefit in rather for cease harming. Cease harming. Yeah. Um, sorry, we are under an obligation to cease harming. Yes, and you as and part of your uh, analysis of the cases, you're under no obligation to benefit the environment. Right, but that's different from ceasing from harm. I agree, but the question is, would the results change? If the results wouldn't oh. change, that, that would be a problem for your analysis. Oh, um, so we're, we're imagining someone who isn't prepared in no way to regulate his conduct by whether or not he's harming the environment but who, as a matter of fact, doesn't harm the environment, and let's say also ceases harming the environment because it maximizes profits. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not seeing the problems here. Because he, uh, so we're under an obligation, so, um, what we need is a case where someone does something that we're agreed is wrong. Okay. Um, and um, uh, does it knowingly. Okay. And so not in a sort of colloquial sense, merely unintentionally. Right. Accidentally. But where we say that in some ways, it's kind of interesting, but it actually was unfortunate. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, so you assume case one is like that, but it's... I'm assuming, so, you're, so going back to your first thing, yeah, so, I'm assuming most people think it's wrong to harm the environment, and right. they wouldn't, they wouldn't make these distinctions unless they thought that. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, the, so the problem on your view comes because, because uh, there's an area of praise, namely supererogatory actions, which don't reflect um, merely the, uh, the converse of failing to fulfill your obligation. So, so I think maybe maybe I'll, maybe I'll, um, just to make it more general point. Yeah. Um, so, um, you said, so the no effect you interpret, or the, I suppose no claim is uh, intuitions about what mental state someone was in are affected by moral judgments. Right. Um, and um, this came up as well with the answer when she was talking about whether people were forced to do things. Right. Um, it seems to me that the problem with the no effect isn't uh, with, with uh, that, that the experiment shows something about the interrelationship between our judgments of what's intentional and our judgments of what's moral. Right. Um, but its interpretation as uh, saying that moral judgments kind of change our judgments about mental state, because right. these aren't judgments about mental states anymore. They're, yeah. they're moralized judgments. Yeah, that seems to be right. the important lesson. Yeah, but that, that, that's, that's another way of putting it. Right. Yeah, I, I disagree with that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's roughly the point I'm coming back. Yeah. 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 yeah, so uh, just to follow up on that point, yeah. um, I think a lot of people are on board with this de 
inflationary account, this pragmatic account of the Nova effect that, that you're proposing here. Uh, but it just occurs to me that it's interesting that so many of us find this pragmatic account intuitive, given that if somebody told me that you know my apartment got bulldozed, not because anyone wanted it to be bulldozed, but just to make room for the skyscraper, I wouldn't care what the you know what the company's mental state was in particular, or I know I recognize that they didn't desire this particular effect on my apartment, that it was purely just a side effect of their action, and yet I am still ready and willing to hold them accountable and to blame them and punish them for what they did. And so there, it just seems to me like there's this tension between our intuition about how compelling the pragmatic account is here, that obviously like to hold someone accountable, we want to make sure that desires there, intents there, whatever, it doesn't matter that there's just force it. And yet in everyday life, I feel like, you know, in cases when we're being wronged, we don't care. Like if you knew that this was gonna happen to me, then you shouldn't have done it. This happens in, you know, close relationships and even in, you know, this other case that I've suggested. So that's the first thing that I find kind of interesting. And then the second thing is that um, I'm, I'm curious about whether your account could accommodate the non-moral cases of the Nova effect. So I've often wondered whether there are different types of explanations, different kinds of yeah. Nova effects. So in Edward Mashery's yeah. cases where it seems like when you are incurring a cost that is to yourself, you were still judged as incurring a cost to yourself intentionally, but not <coughs> incurring some good side effect to yourself intentionally, purely non-moral, and yet you see the same kind of asymmetry yeah. in these assertions of folk psychology. Yeah. So right, so you're perfectly right that I've said, I haven't said more, but I tried to say more than I want to say anything about any other kinds of cases than this one kind of case. And what I'd say about this kind of case, which I wouldn't be able to say about a lot of these other cases. But the first thing you said, I wasn't quite sure to track that, because uh, I thought you were saying, as I was saying, that we hold people accountable for their actions, um, for raping, managing, torturing, and so forth and so on regardless of what their motives were in doing. Those cases are tricky because it seems like the end goal was desired, like the bad things were desired, but I'm talking about cases where I know perfectly well that someone didn't mean me harm and yet I got hurt, you know, as a casualty. I'm perfectly willing to blame them even though I recognize that there was no intent and simply just foresight. But that's because we're accountable, not just for not. So if that's the case, then how, why, why are we so prone to these pragmatic accounts? We should be perfectly willing to say the CEO is blameworthy and he didn't intend to do it. Sorry, the CEO is blameworthy and he didn't intend to do it. Yeah, we should be because I'm perfectly willing to say the company that bulldozed my house. I'm I'm mad at them, and yet I know that they didn't intend me harm personally. Well, because I, I think. I think you're using the word intention to capture by this sort of theoretical nature and not using it in the ordinary way we would use it in daily life. If, if, I, if, if I'm convinced that he did it unintentionally, I mean, nor, nor, so here's a question. Isn't it normally case if somebody says, well, sorry, that was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. Okay. Well, then you, that function is normally an excuse. I suppose so, but that's not the particular wording that I see. Right, exactly. That's sorry. So that's not the so. As far as I'm concerned, researchers have an absolute right 
I know. We're really curious. Uh, the question is what the subject. The question is what the subject so is thinking. So they just ask, did the did the person, did the executive, intentionally cause harm? That's the question. And I'm assuming that the subjects, like you or I, would think that if they agreed that it was only accidental that the uh, that the harm was accidental, then. Uh, they wouldn't land in, and they wouldn't call it intentional. That, right? that seems that seems compelling for the case of intentionally, but given yeah. that the nomotech seems to obtain for desire and intent yeah. to, and, and in order to, it doesn't seem like the flip side there is having done it accidentally, and so that's why yeah. I just experience this tension where I'm yeah. willing to blame people for foresight and not intent, and yet well, I well, agree well, that he's a cat's heart compliant. So we're agreed we blame people for foresight. That's the whole point of the argument. And the question is whether you need more for intent. You need more for the question. The question is we ordinarily understand it in ordinary context of whether somebody did wrong intentionally. Whether you need more than just foresight. And what I'm saying is that's all you need in those cases, generally. It's not all you need for doing something that's crazy. I, I guess I'm just saying, if that's all you need, then you shouldn't see the no effect for desire or intent to. Well, then we have to look at those cases differently. That's right. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll, here's what I'm saying. It seems to me you could explain the no effect in these cases just by this, and you yeah. wouldn't need anything else. Now, you're right, but you, wouldn't, you couldn't transfer it to, to the other yeah. some. Yeah, well, it actually raised this. It's a very small point that. To be precise, the question is whether the action was intentional or not. It's not a question about mental states in the original studies. Was the action intentional or not? But did he intentionally do it? But, but still, there's a, the mainstream human philosophy action is that you can do something intentionally without having the intention to do it, due to Bradman's famous right. cases and so on. So, so I think sometimes precision matters here. But, but if you get the same result when you use unambiguous mental
so it's certainly right that people will decide whether or not to bring a tort action for all kinds of different reasons and cost might be one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now you said that the reason why well, you want to let the victim to uh, to decide whether they want to bring the case to yeah. a court or not is because it's for them to decide if they want to forgive well, the offender. So, but yeah. But, well, that's so. I, the, the basic thought is that. Um, In, in, so tort cases are cases where victims have rights. Okay? Um, and the basic thought is that to have a right is to have a bundle of different individual authorities. So only the right holder can waive the right. Only the right holder can consent to what would otherwise be a, be a violation of the right. Uh, not being a violation by giving their consent. Only the victim can forgive. Only the victim can decide whether or not, though she doesn't forgive, not to seek compensation. Okay? So there's a whole bunch, and, and of course there'll be lots of reasons why people won't do these things, and or do them or don't do them. They, sometimes they'll be appropriate, sometimes they won't be so appropriate. But the crucial point is that um, we, we treat this to be a matter of individual discretion in a way we don't think it's a, there's any individual discretion in wh whether to blame someone. So I, you know, I don't, it's not up to me whether or not to blame someone. The question is whether it's enough to feel indignation. The question is whether someone, what someone did was uh, outrageous. Uh, and I, as it were, just sort of channeling what I take to be the giving voice to what I think to be uh, the blameworthiness or, or the, the, the blame that is a fitting response on the community's behalf or to represent the person's behalf to the blameworthiness of what that person did. So there's no individual expression in that case, though in the other case there is individual expression. So that, that's, that's what I was trying to highlight. Now you're certainly right that how I exercise my individual expression whether I exercise it in one way or another can be responsible for a whole host of considerations. And it's not just for whether I'm prepared to forgive. Yeah. I had a kind of, I'm not sure it's a yeah. question, but just to, to try to connect your account to the cognitive science empirical yeah. literature a bit, yeah. a bit farther, maybe. So, in Leanne's talk, essentially, she, she described you know, this capacity to ascribe mental states to people and yeah. then. Yeah. Are more capacities for judgment, so we judge things to people ought to do certain things and more reason. Right. And you claim that there's this farther third layer that relates to genuine obligation and involves the second personal right. uh, um, concepts right. and, and, and associated attitudes. So it would be interesting to ask, well, how does that reflect at the empirical level? Um, right. Presumably. That third layer presupposes these two prior capacities, but you want to say they're not, it's not producible to them. Right. Which would suggest that it may require distinctive processes and mechanisms. Right. Well, on I think top of the other one. I think that's um, exactly so right. And, and you, you'd be interested, it'd be interesting, at least conceptually, maybe empirically <coughs> possible, that someone would possess these two lower layers while lacking right. that distinctive capacity. So Bian talks about 
high-functioning autistic people, right. psychopaths, right, 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 the right. PFC patient, it would be interesting to see whether we could, right. in some rigorous empirical way, look at right. cases where you have, you know, you can say that you ought you know, to do it, maybe even strong to do it, right. but without fully understanding right. concepts like obligation in the sense right. that you're talking about, right. because you're unable to keep track of these second personal right. interchange. Uh, right. Right, so, so take psychopathy. So psychopathy, so, uh, you know, we might have the very same uh, disposition to attribute minds to psychopaths that we do to, uh, you know, non-psychopaths. I mean, but we might also think that they lack capacities to genuinely be held responsible. Doesn't mean we wouldn't think that we shouldn't protect ourselves from it in various ways and we couldn't legitimately do so. But but um, but it does seem, you know, so what this line of thought suggests is the capacity to be a moral agent requires the capacity to be held and to hold oneself Responsible, and that requires capacity for certain kinds of uh, reciprocal mental states and for empathy, for example. Um, we can imagine, we can't imagine, we know there can be rational agents who can lack these capacities. And so these things, there should be all kinds of empirical evidence that these things can come apart. You have some point. Very good follow so, uh, so, if on your, on your view, psychopaths can't do anything wrong, they can't be held. If they lack those capacities, they therefore can't be held responsible. Well, there'd be evidence. If, if the folk are willing to hold psychopaths to, to say that they're acting wrongly, while being aware of the lack of capacities, that would show that they don't share the second personal conception. Well, so, in two ways we can treat psychopaths. You can treat it as an excusing condition. Okay. You know, there's a three ways you can suppose that the fact that someone had utterly lacks whatever capacities psychopaths lack uh, is just irrelevant to the blameworthiness of their actions. You know, I, I think that's a hard view to hold. Uh, but we could hold that, and obviously that wouldn't be the view. Uh, we can hold that uh, it is an excusing but that doesn't mean that these people aren't nonetheless doing things that are wrong. And they're acting wrong. It's just that they're acting wrong with excuse. Now, that's, a, that, that's not a fully happy position. Or we can treat it as, uh, we can say they're doing things that are wrong, but it's not wrong of them to do it. We can't impute the wrong to them as moral agents. Um, so, you know, so we, it's not that we, we think it's somehow permissible. See, notice the view wouldn't be that um, psychopaths, as it were, get a moral pass. It wouldn't be the things that are morally. Uh, wrong for us to do or somehow permissible for psychopaths. 
No. The thought would be that psychopaths aren't capable of occupying the space of moral agent, of acting. And they can certainly do things that are permissible or wrong or obligatory. But we can't say that you know, we can't impute those actions back to them. They don't have the obligation to refrain from them. Yeah, we can say that. That would be tested if you were into yeah, no, Suppose the folk don't say that. Should I be bothered by that? I mean, that's a very sort of the theoretically mediated kind of thought. That, yeah. Do you have some quick final? Uh, yeah, just, just a question on consulting. Is it the accountability process that caused no effect? Say it again? Do we have the accountability internal process? Do they cause, do they produce a no effect in the exact case? Well, so I'm saying that it's quite clear because we have a clear Caravaggio solution that we can do with moral bias. So I was more thinking like uh, that we have a negative representation of an executive as a profiteer and a self-innocent person. Then the next uh, causal relationship is content, and from content, we end up uh, in moral bias rather than. Now, I want to see it in a pretty different way. I want to see it just as, we don't have to have a view of the executive as a bad person or whatever. We just know that he's doing something wrong, I'm supposed to, uh, that, and, and he's knowingly doing something wrong, and that's sufficient, and he has no other excuse, we're supposed to, and that's sufficient to be doing something blameworthy. And we also suppose that doing something unintentionally is an excuse. So we say, since he's not doing it unintentionally, for the purposes of this question, he's doing it intentionally. Now, you, that's, a, that's another way, you have another theory, that we have a kind of, you know, we have a, a view about, a, a negative view of the, um, of the executive. Uh, and then that colors our judgment about a certain kind of fact that we take to be there independently of, of, of the, the frame of the question. And uh, that would be a competing theory. Yeah. It's time to end. It says here that there will be concluding remarks, but I just want to thank you all for coming and thank Stephen and the other speakers for fantastic talks over the past two days. Mm -hmm. Can you join us? <laughs>